Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you because we the people. Episode 7 The Past is Political. Welcome, Chris. Episode 7. How you doing? I'm doing well, Josh. Thank you. It's always good to find ourselves once again on the History Against the Grain podcast. Yeah, yeah. It's one of my, the real joys of my life right now. I, I have actually big news. I didn't share this with you earlier. We are now available in uh, Vanuatu. The, uh, the Pacific Island of Vanuatu is now able to listen to our podcast as well as Serbia and Montenegro. So I just wanted to fill you in on our expanding uh, listenership, or at least potential listenership. That is fantastic. Uh, the tagline of our show, after all, is a history without borders. Uh, we should probably talk later about how our public relations efforts are doing in uh, Guanajuato. Yeah, we got to really, I think we need to take an exploratory trip there, actually, just to make sure that the message is getting out about us. Agreed. So here's where we would normally do our, our love-hate segment. I'm not feeling the hate right now is the problem. I mean, to be, to be honest, I did listen to um, our arch enemy, John Meacham's podcast. I, I couldn't resist. I fell down that rabbit hole. And there's, there's plenty of rage I could get into there. But I feel like, you know, at this time, we need to talk more about joy. We need to talk more about the things that are getting us through these, these tough times. As I was suggesting earlier, one of the things that's getting me through is really doing this podcast. Getting to talk to you about history each week has really reinvigorated my love of history. I don't think it went away, but it's gotten me to think about history more and, and be more aware of what I, what I do when I talk about history. It's changed the way I talk to my students about history when we do these Zoom, Zoom meetings. And then again, just a chance to hear what you're thinking about each week. I think last week, um, you really blew me away with, with your discussion of the Civil War and changing the way we think of it. I get to talk to people like my brother, which was so amazing to get to do. And then this week to this very fine historian, Vincent Leong from Hong Kong. And it's just stuff I wouldn't have had the chance to do, at least in that formal setting, without this podcast. So I want to thank you for, for doing this with me. And uh, thank you guys for listening, because without listeners, we'd just be two dudes talking to each other, which we can do on our own. Right? We don't need, don't need to record that. Well, you know, it's been a, a definite privilege. Uh, and like you say, a kind of highlight creatively. Not that I want our, our fans to think we're getting soft. You know, our knuckles are, are bruised from beefing with Meacham last week. And so we're going to give him a rest this week and uh, come back raring to go on that front in a later episode. But yeah, no, I... I Totally uh, appreciate your sentiment there and share it as well. As we, we transition, because we're doing love, love this week, you've got some love to throw out. And I think it's actually really relevant to what I was saying, because, you know, we're trying to do this, this podcast about how we can be better as historians and how we can think better, or I'm sorry, think better historically, I guess, um, without the kind of blinders that I think have been so much part of historical thinking in the past. And it's important to understand that you know, we're doing this because this is something we like to do and like to talk about. We're not the only ones doing this. We're very reliant on, you know, reading books like those of, of my brother Benno, reading books like that of, of Vincent. You've got some, uh, some writing to, to talk about this week that you've been, you've been reading over. 
And that leads us into the Pulitzer Prize. And we had some good surprises when the Pulitzer Prizes were announced. So, so get into that. Yeah, that's, that's right. We could, we could probably do a love-hate uh, on the Pulitzers and, and most award shows, in fact. But this week, as you say, we're, we're sticking with the love. And, and I want to underline what you just said. You know, I was watching a colleague of ours a few years ago evaluating some teaching. And she said something that really resonated with me. She was teaching a, a cultural anthropology class, our, our colleague, uh, Christina Casper Denman mm-hmm. at American River College. And she very forthrightly told her students, look, the purpose of this class, you know, beyond the units that you get, the grade that you get, is for you to go out in the world and make your world a better place. Uh, and so, yeah, we don't, sometimes as academics, we're shy about that. But I, I want to talk about these Pulitzer Prizes in the context of the discussion we're having that we had last episode uh, in particular. And, and remind our, our listeners that this is more than just some sort of academic, you know, intramural hair splitting exercise we're doing. This is about suggesting how history and the teaching and learning of history can make our world better. So along those lines, uh, yeah, the, I think the Pulitzer Committee was listening to our podcast, Josh. I think everybody is, right? It's, it's having that effect. We see this every week, some new right. effect. Whether it's John Meacham coming up with his rival podcast to try to... <laughs> stakeout territory before we get there or the Pulitzer Prize is choosing actually good books, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? They did. So huzzah for the Pulitzer folks. Uh, in fiction this year, the Pulitzer Prize was given to Colson Whitehead, one of our most esteemed novelists, uh, an African-American writer who often reimagines the historical past. Uh, as one reviewer said of, of Whitehead's work, he applies a master storyteller's muscle not just to excavating a grievous past, but to examining the process by which Americans undermine, distort, hide, or neatly erase the stories he has driven to tell. So Colson Whitehead, his second Pulitzer, by the way, his first, uh, his current novel, The Nickel Boys, his first Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Underground Railroad which for the folks who listened to our previous episode, that should ring true. It's a fantastic uh, telling and reimagining of the past that we were discussing, in fact, of fugitive slaves in the last episode. For history, uh, A Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America by W. Caleb McDaniel. Professor McDaniel applies his craft at uh, Rice University, in Texas, and from the publisher of his his work, his historical work, The Unforgettable Saga of One Enslaved Woman's Fight for Justice and Reparations. Uh, And uh, McDaniel tells this story of a true story of an enslaved woman's eventual legal triumph in an American court, nonetheless, after the Civil War. A woman who had been born into slavery, had been freed, and then illegally kidnapped and sold back into slavery. The story tells her her eventual legal triumph in suing uh, her enslaver. And then finally, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones of the New York Times and New York Times Magazine, who was awarded the 2020 Pulitzer Prize for commentary for her series, The 1619 Project, that is the year 1619, New York Times Uh, Times Magazine's groundbreaking exploration of the legacy of Black Americans, starting with the arrival of the first enslaved Americans in the year 1619. 
According to Ms. Hannah Jones, our democracy's founding ideals were false. When they were written, black Americans have fought to make them true. And her series in the Times is, according to my estimation, a bold and necessary revision, Josh, of America's white nationalist narrative. And her work builds on a growing body of scholarship attesting to the central role of slavery in the country's founding and our subsequent economic development. It might not surprise you that already her work has garnered a fair amount of criticism, including for the awarding of the Pulitzer Prize, the uh, New York Post, one of your favorite media outlets, says that the only Pulitzer she should have received for 1619 was the Pulitzer for fiction. You're trying to goad me into a hate segment is what you're doing right now, right? <laughs> we will have much more to say about the 1619 Project and particularly the critics of the 1619 Project who uh, seem to be standing in the way of, of really the kind of history that we're trying to tell here. So that's for no, a later episode. Right. It's all love today. For all three of these Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, for ripping uh, the cover off America's hidden in plain sight histories, we applaud them. This has been a bit of a, a theme for us on this podcast, wouldn't you say? Finding those uh, hidden stories, bringing them to light. Yeah, I think it's it's become to me that maybe the most significant thing that um, that's come out of this. Last week, you came up with this title, "Hidden in Plain Sight," for the pod uh, for the, for the episode, and you know, just when you said it, it just was a nice sounding thing. But the more we kind of talked that episode, the more it hit me how how powerful this idea was that. Um, I was actually talking to my students later that week. I do these Zoom meetings with them and we just kind of, there's no structure. It's just my usual preparedness, uh, no structure, just kind of off the top of my head. And uh, I started talking about, you know, this metaphor for how we can kind of think about history. And I, I, I started talking about, you know, you walk up a, a hill and you see a crowd of people gazing out at a sunset and you just happen for whatever reason to turn your head a little bit to the right and you notice there's a unicorn grazing in the grass. But nobody's looking at it because they're all looking at the sunset. And I, I, I think that's a lot of what happens in history. It's not necessarily always nefarious, but it just there is that that comfort of of standing with the crowd and, and looking at the thing you're supposed to look at. And it does take some 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 force sometimes. It does take some some effort to just turn your head like 15 degrees to the right and see this other version of the story, to see this other perspective. And when you do, it really can transform how you see everything in many ways. And that was kind of my experience in, you know, listening to you talk about the Civil War last week. And it was also my experience reading the book that I'm going to be talking about in the interview segment that's that's to come. And so for me, that's become the central metaphors that there's all these stories. There's this infinite history we can we can find in the past and trying to uncover those stories that have always been there. But for whatever reason, we've all been looking at the wrong thing or looking in one direction, not even the wrong direction, but just looking in one direction, which is a. Uh, made it so hard to see these things that have been right there the entire time. Well, once again, uh, very well said, my friend. And in fact, you provided us with a fantastic segue into our, our next segment uh, that we're calling today, The Burden of History. Yeah, so this is uh, Hayden White is the topic. Hayden White is a very, uh, becomes a very well-known intellectual historian in the, mostly in the, in the 70s, I think is where he mostly makes reputation. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. 60s and 70s. Yeah, his big, his big book comes out in 73, Meta History. Which you read. Um, I've been joking this week because you, you've been reading this. It's a not an easy read, right? 
it's uh, an ambitious work. Let's it's put it an that. ambitious work. And you've been then texting me that your favorite uh, quotes from it. So it's almost like I'm getting the secondhand version of reading the book with all the, the boring parts cut out and you're just giving me the, uh, the gems. <laughs> so it's, it's like the, the Wikipedia page through, through text messages or maybe the cliff notes through text messages. Uh, so let's get into what, what did you find as you read Metahistory, which I, I believe reread, right? It's something you read maybe in graduate school. That's the kind of book you would have read in graduate school maybe? Well, you know, in all seriousness, there's a, there's a separate story there. And I think Hayden White, though we are lauding his work uh, here on our podcast, has often been at odds with, with the profession, you know, mm. that he's not always been warmly welcomed. And, and it, it's startling to me now that so little uh, exposure did I have to, to his work in grad school. And, and one time when I brought it up with a, one of my major professors, you know, in my PhD program, he said, well, what are you going to do with Hayden White? There's no money in that. You know, you're going to get a job teaching. But uh, yeah, never mind that. I think the significance of those Pulitzer Prizes that we just mentioned and the, cr the criticism even that they're receiving, you know, reminded me of what Hayden White himself called the burden of history, the burden of history. And that was from a 1966 uh, you were still a twinkle in your mama's eye. I was just a little tyke. Uh, in 1966, his essay, which announced Hayden White really as a historian, I think, to, to be reckoned with. So, yeah, I want to take a little time here in the episode to discuss that idea of the burden of history in support of our own, you know, stated mission here on History Against the Grain, that is to provide a, a history without borders and to uh, uncover those rich but often hidden histories uh, that can service, I think, so well in resolving, you know, the problems and conflicts of our of our own time. But uh, but yeah, for many years, uh, until his death, by the way, just a couple of years ago, uh, Hayden White, a professor of history at a number of our leading universities, in a career that spanned the better part of of six decades, including uh, here in California, by the way, and at your alma mater, the University of California, Santa Cruz. Yeah, he was there when I was there. I just, he was like a, a, a name that got whispered in the wind every once in a while. <laughs> I didn't quite understand who he was or, or what he did until much later. Well, look, I mean, sometimes being late to the party means you get there right when you're supposed to. And I think we're getting back to Professor White right when we needed to uh, with History Against the Grain. You know, we'll, we've mentioned some of his work before and we'll revisit his work again, in future episodes, because frankly, it's just too big to distill down into an eight-minute or ten-minute segment and leave it at that. Uh, I think he's going to inform a lot of what we have to say as we uh, go over. But look, here it is. Uh, Hayden White advocated uh, for historians to take a more self-aware and intellectually and conceptually honest approach to the work that they do in writing history. You know, it's one of those things, everybody's doing it, but nobody's talking about it kind of thing. Like they used to say of the weather, you know, everybody's, everybody's talking about it, nobody's doing anything about it. Well, in a, in a way, I think Hayden White's uh, critique, if you will, the history profession uh, held the same uh, basic premise because when he first wrote his seminal essay, The Burden of History, back in 66, it was his contention that historians had become intellectually lazy and rather complacent in the methodologies and meaning of their, their work uh, as historians, that is compared to, say, scholars and intellects in other fields. 
including scientists and social scientists, uh, literary critics, and, and artists generally. And, and not only that, Josh, but that, you know, partly as a result of that complacency, the popular audience for history, according to White, had likewise become complacent, you know, in accepting history in whatever popular style was presented, whether it be in the classroom or the movie theater or theme park, uh, what have you. And that, you know, as a result, people had generally grown accustomed to the notion that history, you know, dealing as it did with the past, was simply concerned with affairs that were, for the most part, over and done with. And that as a result, a kind of divide was created, you know, between the now and the then, the, between the us and them of the past. And, and unfortunately, you know, many intellectuals therefore had come to conclude that history was of little practical use uh, in the current affairs and problems of society, other than maybe as a kind of palliative or, or mass entertainment, you know, to assuage our our consciences uh, or something like that. But actually, as White points out, there have been some very strong criticisms of history along these lines already. For example, after the First World War, uh, the French poet and uh, philosopher, uh, Paul Valéry, expressed, you know, this sort of, um, I guess, disdain toward history and the complacency of history after the catastrophe of the Great War, the catastrophe the disaster of World War I. He wrote, I'm going to quote Valerie here, history is the most dangerous product evolved from the chemistry of the intellect. History will justify anything. It teaches precisely nothing or contains everything and furnishes examples of everything. Nothing was more completely ruined by the last war, said Valerie, than the pretension to foresight but it was not from any lack of knowledge of history, surely, he says rather sarcastically. And I know you teach Valerie, don't you? I do. I talk about him in that context, post-World War I, and this idea that up through World War I, the European mind kind of collectively, and that's always dangerous talking about that, but, you know, at least within that elite structure had, had based, you know, their own feelings about themselves on these ideas of progress, which they believed only white Western countries had access to. And that with World War I, for a lot of people, that idea of progress was was destroyed. And so Valerie has this um, essay he writes in, the, in, I think in 1919, so right as the war comes to an end. And the war is over and you think, okay, so now we can look forward to this, this dawn of a new age or whatever you want to say this, you know, now we can kind of pick up the pieces. We can find hope through history because I got to I got to subtweet John Meacham as much as possible. But, uh, you know, what he says, I think uh, the quote is, um, the storm has broken and still we are uneasy. Um, he talks about the storm is about to break. Um, and then he has this great line about, um, we hope vaguely and we fear specifically, basically, that the hopes, the, where our hopes are supposed to come from is not clear at all. But the things we fear are so real and so specific. And it, it really is um, a, a great encapsulation of just that that dread that comes from living through an age like that. So yeah, he's a, a amazing writer and, and really does get across this uh, you know this this death of progress that that occurs at that time. Yeah, and and look, I mean, frankly, his disillusionment, as he said, was largely pointed straight at the historians. 
you know, who had either failed to see this calamity coming or who had nothing beyond the kind of partisan cheerleading while it was going on, or who were left, frankly, afterwards to say, we can't explain it. So, yeah, Valerie and others picked up on this and became disenchanted. And that's what Hayden White you know, was addressing in 1966, the sort of loss of confidence that somehow history had something serious to say to those of us living in the modern age. It was fine for, you know, a Disneyland attraction to have Abraham Lincoln up and talking, you know, to guests like a robot, you know, but beyond that, no. And, and you know, as, as White put it, the idea that the, that the past was, quote, supposed to be over and done with, you know, was, was of common uh, currency in some basic way. And of course, he didn't believe that. Aiden White didn't believe that. As he said, in, in reality, our own relationship to the past is that it's constantly intruding upon it, you know, by which he meant that the past was constantly intruding on the present, but that uh, the present was also constantly intruding on the past, that there was a very active and dynamic relationship, and that it was that entangled relationship, and not the supposedly obsolete nature of history that historians had to come to terms with. You know, it reminded me of the great novelist, William Faulkner, who, who once wrote, the past is not dead, it's not even past, you know, and, and Faulkner was a guy who grew up in the post-Civil War South where evidences of the past, the hobgoblins, the, the boogeyman of the past, the false promises of the past were all around him and find their way into his novels. But, you know, he wasn't a historian. He was a novelist. And so he was capturing that sense that Hayden White uh, wanted for historians to reclaim and to be able to capture and, and for that to happen. You know, he said historians would have to formally face up to what he called the burden of history or risk facing that kind of cultural irrelevance, really. And uh, look, you know, he that's a very interesting phrase. I think you'd agree. Burden of history. Look, on, on the one hand, he meant the sheer weight of history. You know, like like you've quoted Karl Marx as saying that the past could weigh like an alp. That is like a mountain on our minds. On the brain of the living, yeah. When coming to terms with it, you know, if nothing else, the past can read like a chronicle of horrors, wars, famines, plagues, and more wars just for good measures. And, you know, this was morally burdensome and perhaps dispiriting and, you know, but also in an even more burdensome way that history, as Paul Valery said, somehow had nothing to teach us about the real problems of our own time. Uh, one of the first to level that charge, you know, was the German philosopher Nietzsche, Frederick Nietzsche. The unrestrained historical sense, wrote Nietzsche, pushed to its logical extreme, uproots the future because it destroys illusions and robs existing things of the only atmosphere in which they live. And, you know, I was thinking about Nietzsche's quote, as a history professor, how does how does the history we teach perhaps uproot the future? You know, and I was thinking about my students, because look, you know, either we're teaching them about great accomplishments and inventions or famous sayings and speeches, all of which, while meant to be inspirational, run the risk of making them, our students, think that all the truly great accomplishments belong to the past and can only be sort of uh, passively revered or worshiped, you know, according to the needs of the lesson. And, 
And you know, by the way, when combined with the dead weight of history's tragedies, you have the recipe for a great Freudian crisis in the psyche of the poor student there. What do you think? Yeah, you know, the, the thing that stands out most in all that is is the self-awareness part of it, right? That above above all else, being aware of what we're doing and not just presenting these things as if, you know, I'm handing down truth to you students, which you now can go out into the world and carry, that there really is that that part of it where it, it has to be you're giving them a bunch of these versions of the story. You're showing them that the history that's hidden in plain sight. You're showing them, you know, the dominant narrative. You're contrasting those. You're making them make those those contrasts. And ultimately what should come out of that is people who have a much more sophisticated way of thinking about history as opposed to this traditional thing uh, where, um, you know, it's just this, it's just a subject you take. I think uh, in, in the interview, Vincent is going to talk about when he asks his students about uh, why they're in history class, they said, because you take history like you take math or you take, you know, it's, it's on the curriculum. So of course you take history, but our job really has to be more than just fulfilling that obligation of teaching history because that's where their credits come from. It really is about how we think about ourselves in relation to the past, how we think about the past in relation to ourselves. And I think that's kind of a, a, a nut that Hayden White cracked for us in many ways that once he advances this notion that, you know, uh, that the narrative that history uses, the narratives history uses are themselves constructed. And therefore, the history that gets told in those narratives is constructed as well. It really opens up this way of, of being self-aware about what we do and when we tell stories about history. And that's ultimately what has to happen. If you're just kind of blindly parroting these, these lines because it's the same lines your history instructor taught you when you were in school, it's a dead end. We're not going anywhere. Might as well retire and go read your New York Times bestseller yeah. nonfiction books, something like that. You're right. You're right. You're right about that. I think, you know, in fact, if we look at not only Hayden White, but, Hayden White, but, but a philosopher of history like Nietzsche, you know, I mean, Nietzsche was calling for a history that would liberate the person in the present to imagine a different future. You know, one full of possibilities, as you suggest, you know, possibilities for uplift and accomplishment. And as we'll see, you know, with Hayden White after the interview that you do, as we wrap back around, you know, Hayden White wasn't neutral either. He didn't want an inert history. Neither did he want one that was merely a cover for or propaganda for, for some regime or another. He wanted one that was capable of inspiring solutions to the grave problems that, you know, confront us in our own time, as you say. But, you know, to have that sort of history, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. We got to undertake a close examination of history itself. Uh, what what White, Hayden White called the analysis of the deep structure of the historical imagination. You know, what he later coins the term metahistory uh, to describe. Uh, otherwise, we run the risk as he suggests of being nothing more than a, a lesser discipline, a popular salve for popular storytelling, you know, uh, to provide escapist stories for the masses, but not necessarily enlighten anybody. And at worst, you know, be rendered a kind of propaganda in the hands of those who wished, you know, to see public conformity and, and dutiful conformity under the false gods of our supposedly shared past. And so I think that's our segue, isn't it? That's our segue into your interview, Professor Lung. 
And we'll have some more thoughts uh, later on as we come out of that interview on, on where this discussion should. So it's with great anticipation then I turn it over to you, my partner, uh, with the introduction of this week's very special guest. Yeah, so I'm talking to Vincent Leong about his book, The Politics of the Past in Early China. All right, I'm here with Vincent Leung, live from, from Hong Kong. Thanks for joining me from so far away. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for uh, having me on your podcast. Yeah, I, sh I should note you're at uh, uh, Lingnan University in Hong Lingnan Kong? University uh, in Hong Kong, yeah. So I came across your book. Uh, so you actually are a friend of my brother's, and he, he kind of made me aware of you in your, in your book. And so I picked it up last week and read it, and it's just a fascinating read. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the politics of the past in ancient China. But I actually want to start with a, a more general uh, set of questions just about the way that China has been presented, you know, to a certain degree. And then also where I really want to start is with this idea of comparative history. Uh, mm -hmm. This is something I talked about in the episode last week. And I was saying that comparative history is, is a pretty limited way to see the past. And what mm -hmm. it often does is it um, imposes on, you know, different quote unquote civilizations, these, mm -hmm. um, you know, as you call them, these essentializing uh, mm -hmm. versions of what they are. Uh, and so it creates these real boundaries, these real distinctions between civilizations that aren't always there when you look, look closer. And so you say in your, in your um, introduction, you say, uh, talking about a specific issue in, in Chinese history, it's a culturalist framework designed to render the unfamiliar familiar by conjuring mm -hmm. up a unitary, unitary order with essential traits. Um, and so China, I think, has been really subject to that kind of essentializing when you're reading other people's work or when you're hearing people talk about the historical China, what are some of the most pervasive essentializing elements that you, you encounter that, that make you angry or frustrated about the way it's being presented? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so many, but I think, uh, you know, in, uh, uh, in the context of this podcast, you know, I'm thinking about my, uh, this, this book um, and um, uh, one that came immediately to mind is, is the idea that um, the Chinese people, especially uh, in ancient times, uh, uh, they were. Um, they have always been very historically minded, you know, and yeah. and, and this notion that um, they they worship their ancestor, they 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 um, or, or, I mean, among uh, among the various civilizations, you know, in, in the Asian world, they are the ones that uh, that are most respectful of the, of the of the ancestor and therefore the past, and therefore they are more historically minded than than other people. And and therefore, you know, uh, the, as the narrative goes, uh, that, that that's why they wrote so much history. That's why they kept such uh, meticulous records of, of their past. Yeah, so you see that being thrown around a lot, and yeah. uh, and it's um, and it's just kind of taken for granted as a cultural fact. You know, as a as a this kind of cultural habit of the Chinese people. You know, uh, anyone that falls within within that that that. That boundary, you know, in in, in East Asia, uh, somehow, you know, they're born loving history. Right, right, right. It's built in. It's born into them. Yeah. Yeah, and it's so frustrating because it's such a. It's an. I mean, it's the 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 the. It's not entirely incorrect to say that yes, they they wrote a lot of historical narratives. They produce a lot of historical work. But for me, you know, it's much less of a kind of just a cultural phenomenon. It's much more of a historical phenomenon. Well, yeah, I mean, it's possible to talk about the Greeks and, and the Greeks write history also, but it, it doesn't become an essential element of who the Greeks are, right? We don't have to talk about 
all Greeks as, as being historically minded because of Herodotus, something like that. So we're able to make that, that, that distinction there. But when it comes to China, it becomes just a part of, as you call it, a cultural master key. I like that phrase. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's, you see much less of that. I mean, of course, this, have been, uh, this uh, has been heavily critiqued, you know, in the last few decades by scholars, both within the field and outside the field. But still, you see, you know, the, the persistence of some of these uh, ideas, in, um, even today. It's much, it's much more rare these days to see that kind of statement uh, made about modern China or even early modern China. But when it, goes, when it comes to the Asian period, uh, there's still this great tendency to, this great desire to try to explain you know, uh, that place and time and the people by some kind of yeah, uh, kind of cultural master key, you know. Yeah. This is what they believed in. This is what they did. You know, this is the, the idea of belief. You know that they just believe these things. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, you you make a point that these kind of narratives, these kind of essentializing traits, are easy to establish if you just get rid of all the things that don't fit into the story. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, and so I, I think it seems to me that something that's happened in, in the study of Chinese history, particularly by by Westerners, by people from the outside, is that they've kind of taken these ideas that become part of this quote unquote Chinese imperial system, right? Mm-hmm. It's this whole kind of totality, right? Uh, that right. involves Confucianism and, and the bureaucracy and all these kind of things. And they've kind of read it backwards. Do you think that's that's what sort of happened, that, that they've taken uh, you know the later dynasties the, the early modern yeah. dynasties at their word that that the past uh you know was the most important thing to the present and that confucius was this 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 particular figure and that that kind of defined everything about them and when you know you start seeing westerners come to china more particularly in like the 18th century they're bringing with them this idea of progress and stagnation mm-hmm. and then they encounter this this society that kind of is describing its own history in terms of of continuity yeah. So it kind of it fits together in a way that the Europeans are bringing something with them, and what they find in China is exactly what they expect to find, which is that this <laughs> this great old civilization that's it's great and it's rich and it's uh, and it's you know has done all this stuff, but it also doesn't really change. I think Adam Smith said something about that in in Wealth of Nations that China is always going to be great. It's never going to go backward, but it's also never going to go forward. Yeah, and I think um, uh, I did not deal with this directly in this book. Uh, but that is certainly um, part of the issues that I try to unpack, you know, um, in the broader sense. Because this, but this, this uh, essentially, you know, Orientalist uh, idea that you know the Chinese people were had always been historically minded. You know, this is celebrated. Ce- this was celebrated by some. You know that oh, you know how wonderful. You know that they were able to build this great civilization because they are so mindful of lessons in history from right. from their past. At the same time, it had also been used to criticize uh, this civilization for being too historically minded, that they're too bound to the past, right. um, that it's all about conservation. It's all, it, they're, um, and they're extremely conservative because they're too bound to the past, and, and therefore they failed to innovate uh, when they needed to, and, and more broadly speaking, they failed to modernize you know, when they really needed to you know, in the 18th, 19th century. Yeah, so I think at the very beginning you know, of this conversation, you know, the, uh, the idea that... Um, I mean, this, it can sound a bit kind of uh, abstract, uh, you know, this, this kind of uh, intellectual abstraction, you know, where the, if the Chinese believe in this, you know, it seems like this kind of idol speculation, right. you know, like who cares, you know, what they, I mean, if they believed or didn't they believe, you know, uh, but I think they do have really, they can have really um, consequential 
effects, you know, um, in, in how we think about the world, how we think about how we relate to others in the, in the here and now. Yeah. Absolutely. Cause that's, I mean, that's what we're talking about is that, you know, where I began is that when you make these comparisons, then China just becomes these bundle of elements that can be then compared to another civilization that its own bundle of elements. And what it tends to do is it, it, it kind of reifies this sense of, of distance between these civilizations. It um, elides, you know, these ideas that ultimately there's interaction going back and forth across Eurasia, that there's mm -hmm. common links between these places and just turns them into these, these separate places that, um, that have no relationship. And there's something unique about China that makes it somehow different, you know, almost innately different from other civilizations mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah, yeah. This this kind of approach to um, to other, you know, the the, the early Chinese. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So I want to get to this this quote. So this is kind of Hayden White Week on our on our podcast. Um, <laughs> and it, when I first started reading your, your introduction, immediately this this quote came to mind. Historians in general, however critical they are of their sources, tend to be naive storytellers. And 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 it just occurred to me. Because what you're talking about in the introduction is that there's a sense, as you talked about, that Chinese history tended to be very didactic, that it, it was always about imparting lessons. And it seems as if Western historians, I think particularly, have bought into that. You know, and, and it's, even though they, they read the sources closely and they, they analyze the sources in the way historians are supposed to analyze sources, what they end up doing with that is just telling these, these stories, these narratives that are not very complex. They're pretty simple and they do paint this picture of the past based around this misunderstanding of, of mm. how things happened. So you, do you agree with that, that idea that, that historians can both be critical of sources, but naive storytellers? Definitely. Yeah, it's funny that uh, we, we had this discussion about Hayden White, and it's not something that was very much on my mind uh, when I wrote this book. Uh, it's not even cited in the bibliography. Um, the more I think about it, the more I kind of realize that he's very much in the background. Uh, uh, with, uh, with this quote, uh, you know, um, in a way, you know, many historians are just naive storytellers. He, I think, he 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 does such a great job in kind of um, in in emphasizing the the great agency that historians have. Um, right. That um, that is not just about um, kind of collecting sources and putting them in the right timeline and then presenting the most accurate, you know, objectively true account, but that. But that ultimately, the kind of the final um, in the final stages of, of of producing a historical work, a historical narrative, we are all storytellers, and we can all agree on the facts, on the, on what happened. But in the end, we play a role in choosing the kind of stories we want to tell. Right. And I, I think I see a lot of that, like as, as you mentioned in my uh, uh, in the introduction. I know that how many early China. Uh, historians choose to tell their story, the, the, choose to emphasize on the didactic aspect of early Chinese historiographies. But there are actually other stories that can be told. And I think in my book, I try to do that like chapter to chapter, just to show the variety of stories that, um, that we can tell about early China and also the many, many different stories that are early, the early Chinese themselves told about their past. Yeah, and you do a really uh, amazing job of that. I, you know, the thing that stands out to me is that your version of this of this um, story, and I, I, I guess I'm using story kind of ironically here because uh, we're just critiquing narrative here, but your version is so much more interesting and so much deeper and so much richer than the traditional account of just the Chinese love history and the use history for this one very specific purpose. There's so much more going on when you read your account. And again, the book is The Politics of the Past in Early China. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is kind of laying out the way that 
history is always serving this particular purpose in, in the present mm -hmm. or serving different purposes, I guess, present as well. And so as we go back to that, that quote by Hayden White, uh, historians in general, however critical they are of their sources, tend to be naive storytellers. What's so fascinating about that is that it really does describe, I would say, the way China has often been portrayed by historians. But the, mm. the, the writers you're talking about in your book, uh, you know, in this period from the, the late first millennium, I'm sorry, late second millennium through the first millennium, they don't seem naive at all. They seem very savvy in what they're doing and, and what kind of history they're, they're selecting, what kind of stories they're selecting and how they're using those stories. Do you think that they were conscious of what they're doing? Are they just telling stories and kind of it, it's reflecting what they feel? Or do you think they have these ideas and they're searching for history to, uh, to describe what they're, what they're thinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's more the latter. And I think um, certainly, you know, uh, the, there are plenty of naive historians, uh, na naive storytellers in early China. And I think those, I mean, those are the people who produced, like their writings are the ones that we no longer read or maybe not even preserved anymore because they're just not that interesting. There's a lesson for you historians today, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think someone like Confucius, or starting with him um, and, and his followers, and, and in this period when when this part of the world was so politically divided and there was a lot of warfare, a lot of violence, you know, people were looking for answers, like how to get out of this, you know, how do we just restore some semblance of order uh, into the world? Uh, they, many of them turned to history and they realized that the kind of the naive stories that they told about the past are no longer sufficient in helping us understand how we got here, like how we got to this horrible situation today. Right. And so we need better stories like we need well not only you know the, the first step will be to know what happened in the past so that's just kind of collecting data and sources uh, but then you know what kind of how do we make sense of, of this past you know of all this stuff that happened short of it being just a random sequence of events how do we make sense of it and I think in my book I try to show and this is by no means an exhaustive uh, account of all the stories that, that they told about their own past, uh, but just the variety of, of the, the kind of stories that they that they told and and how contentious they became, you know, the, the, the competing kind of narratives about the past. You know, you mentioned Confucius, Confucius, and that's an example of the version that you're telling is such a more interesting version than I think that the traditional, again, I think Confucius himself gets kind of essentialized and turned into this very particular figure, but, right. you know, he's often associated with conservatism, right? No. Uh, you know, so, you, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I'm sorry, that's, that's kind of what you're saying earlier, that the, the reliance on history is conservative, it keeps them stuck in the past. Mm -hmm. And, and yes. because Confucius is such a central figure in, in this kind of ideology that emerges in, in later uh, centuries, we associate Confucianism with conservatism. Does that, that make more sense? Yeah, definitely. Yep, yep, yep. But, I mean, yeah, that is yeah. not the Confucius that comes out of, of your description. He's not conservative at all. He, he makes these, these statements. What's the, the famous one is that he's transmitting... He's not creating new knowledge. Uh, he's transmitting knowledge, right? right? Um, he, he transmits, but does not innovate. Yeah. He transmits, yeah. but that's not true at all, right? It's, it's clearly no. false because you read what he's doing and it's really revolutionary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I mean, he, I think in many ways, you know, if, I mean, there's a lot of controversy about, you know, uh, if all those sayings are actually by him. But in any case, you know, in that collection, you know, the analects, um, I think that kind of persona uh, of Confucius, uh, they, Come a, that's come across as very radical. It's not about yeah, because later on, as you as you noted so so eloquently earlier, you know, is is all this pack, is this all this uh, stuff that have become associated with 
China and the Chinese, you know, uh, Confucian culture, Confucian tradition, which means they must be very conservative, which means they must um, worship their ancestors. But if you, if one actually goes back to the to the analects, uh, you see so little of that, or, or or even if you see signs of that, like traces of that, is very different than what we had come to kind of so easily um, speak of, you know, when, when we talk about traditional Chinese culture. Uh, a good example would be something like, you know, ancestor worship. He basically did not talk about that at all in the, yeah. in the, in the whole analects. There's not a single grandparent in the, in the, in the whole analects. You know, he did not <laughs> really funny. care. Uh, <laughs> uh, he talked about, you know, worshiping, like uh, be ritually respectful, you know, mm-hmm. be ritually proper, make sure you, you, you perform all the rituals correctly. And one would assume, you know, some of these might have to do with, ancestor worship but it's not this this kind of overwhelming focus that that it, that it became uh, later on in the tradition yeah isn't there does isn't there a quote from the the analects something like um engage in ritual as if the spirits were watching am i am i remembering that correctly yeah yeah so, something along those lines yeah and you know even even that kind of suggests that well the spirits might be watching or maybe not but it's not really that important right that it's the acts themselves that are important rather than the kind of spiritual yeah. aspects of these things. And just yeah. more broadly, you know, all these guys that you're, you're writing about, there's very little kind of metaphysics in it at all. There's very little, it's very secular, all these ideas in many ways. Yes, actually, yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Writers at different points in this, in this about a thousand year history are basically seeking their own usable past. They're trying to find mm-hmm. something in the past that can serve the conditions of the present. And you start in, again, late second century uh, during mm-hmm. the Zhou dynasty. So what's interesting there, so they're basically, you, you call this kind of geneal- genealogical history that mm-hmm. yes. in order to justify their own position in the society, and that's you know for the kings themselves, but also for those, they're, they're the people who serve them, they're the other uh, aristocrats, that the usable past is so narrow for them. Yeah, it's something that's yeah. for me. Like, yeah. you know, they're basically referring back a few generations in many cases, or not even that far back in history, to their predecessors, and basically using them as models for how they should behave as well. It's exemplary is, I think, how you described it, right? You're mm. looking for these exemplary acts of, of the people yeah. who came before you. And that's working right. both for the kings themselves who say, I'm going mm-hmm. to be, behave as you know uh, this predecessor did. And then as they give orders to their subordinates, they say, you need to behave as your uh, ancestor behaved, uh, which means serve the king in, in, in a particular way. It's a very right. small past, though, that they're referring to. It is, and it's all about essentially about establishing uh, clan membership. You know that this is my father, and my father's father is this person, and and because of that, I'm qualified to do all these things, or to to uh, enjoy all this wealth and privileges in in the world today. Yeah, the focus is really much on uh, genealogies and basically clan membership. And it's a small conversation too. I mean, the, the number of people then who are thinking about history is tiny. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think that also goes into the politics of historical writing, you know, who gets to do this, yeah. um, who, who gets to preserve their past uh, and, and inscribe it on a piece of bronze. Um, yeah. I think that, I mean, so much of that, I just feel like it has been so absent in the in the um, in the scholarship, in the discussion of early Chinese historical thinking, you know, the, 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 this basic kind of economic condition, uh, the condition of possibility. That that their view of history is a view of a tiny number of people, and it does not describe the views of the vast majority of people living within this 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 territory, right? Yeah, definitely. Yep. Um, and then when you when you kind of go forward from there, so now we we're about um, maybe five hundred years 
after that. And so this is a time right. of now Confucius and, right. and, and Mozart, right around, around the same time, right? Mozart and, and Confucius. Right. What's, what's kind of stands out there is the conversation's gotten larger. There's more mm-hmm. people having the conversation, but then the usable past has gotten larger as well. Uh, you have this great um, reference to this, uh, this Chinese scholar writing in the early 20th century. Can you can you talk about what his his what he what he finds out in yeah, his if, studies? If, if, it's, if it's the same person that I'm thinking of, Ye Gu Jie Gang, he uh, early 20th century scholar, and yeah. um, he, uh, he had he made this real, a simple but very powerful uh, observation that uh, over the course of the first millennium BCE, um, the later you move, like the, the, the later in time, um, the older the past became in the mm-hmm. writings of the elite um, that. Um, as time move forward, move forward, you know uh, the uh, the historical field basically uh, expanded further and further. Uh, the, yeah, the number yeah. of figures who get referred to, the number of yep. times and places. I found the quote. So the, the earlier the supposed time of an historical figure, the later he made his first appearance in the received corpus. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And so it really does, you know, suggest this this really interesting thing where you know somebody like Confucius gets to appeal to a, a, a history that his predecessors five hundred years ago didn't have access to. And again, mm-hmm. this gets into the radicalism of, of Confucius, I think, is that, you know, on the mm-hmm. one hand, maybe he is bound by this idea of antiquity, maybe not, but, but bound by the idea of antiquity. But the way he gets around that is by finding a new antiquity to base his ideas around. Uh, yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, in so much, especially in popular discussion, you know, is the idea is, oh, you know, Confucius just loved history or he loved the past. Um, and therefore, he's very conservative and, and uh, unable to innovate. But it's actually a very deliberate choice, you know. When you when you listen to, to uh, when you re- uh, when one reads those passages mm-hmm. in the analect, that is a very thoughtful engagement with the past in a really selective way, and 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 this is something, and this is also the transition that I uh, that I try to point to in this chapter. That um, uh, so it's no longer about establishing clan membership. It's not about establishing who my father is. You know, is is this much more creative and playful. Uh, engagement with the past um, for a really serious purpose of like fixing the world. You know, how do we move forward? Yeah, nothing less than fixing the world, which he sees <laughs> as which he and I think his contemporaries see as broken for for probably a good reason, right? Things have mm-hmm. kind of fallen apart from from that yeah. point in the past. That's mm-hmm. it's now being idealized in some ways, um, but but the way they're idealizing it is very different than you know how a, a Joe King would have um, you know five hundred years earlier, which is only referring to his own direct relatives, basically. And now Confucius has this vast range right. of characters he can he can appeal to, yeah. to, to make his points. You, you have this this quote here that I think is also very very. It's important to your own work, and I think it's important to understand mm-hmm. for people who think about history in general. You know, so some of our listeners certainly are historians, and others are just you know historically interested people. And I, right. I think this really does make a clear case for for what history is is doing and really has always done. It says you say mm-hmm. each period seeks its own usable past. And all mm-hmm. historical narratives are necessarily artifacts of the socio-political conditions of their own time. That ultimately, when we're writing history, we're writing about our own times more than, in some cases, writing about the past. We're using the past for the purposes of the present. We we tend to think of that. I think you even talk about this. That you know, this is something like Eric Hobsbawm's talking about, right? Um, but he's talking about it in the in the era of nation states. And I think you know, even in this more enlightened era of history, I think there's maybe a tendency for for historians to think about this idea of, of these constructed narratives of this idea, uh, use this term, the dominion over the past to mm-hmm. refer to, the, to what the Qin dynasty is trying to do. 
Right. You know, we, we kind of think of this in, in the terms of the nation state, that this is part of, of creating the nation state is taking control of the yeah. past and creating a past that helps describe and define what the nation is. But you're making a really compelling case that it's it's much, much older than that, that this this process has mm-hmm. maybe always been a part of what history has been. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, uh, that article by Hobbes from, uh, from 1972, I think social uses of the past, uh, something like that, I mean, have been so influential and it really... You know the, the notion that um, uh, modern nation states uh, seek, you know, a usable past for itself, you know, to to kind of mystify its its own existence. And I think in my book, I try to show that this is a something that you can identify very easily too um, in earlier times. Do you think it took longer for this to kind of these ideas to filter down into this ancient past than it did for you know the more modern times? Well, I mean, when you read, you know, in your field. Mm-hmm. Was it a later arrival, kind of this way of thinking about yeah. the past? Yeah. So, yeah, because so much of the earlier scholarship is about how uh, the modern Chinese nation state uh, constructed its own narrative. You know, the, the infamous, uh, the notorious uh, cliche uh, of uh, 5,000 years of Chinese history. You know, that, yeah, is, yeah. that is exactly what uh, Hobsbawm was trying to critique or try to, you know, point to. Um, and then, it, yeah, it took a while uh, for this to uh, get to the uh, to the scholarship uh, in the ancient period, yeah, but and but then you know it also has become quite widely accepted as well that um, that is all about it's all about if not building nation state, you know, it's it's about um, kind of mystifying uh, the empire itself, you know. Um, and I think in this book, I I subscribe to that at some level, but I also try to show that it's not always about kind of ideological mystification, you know. Um, there's, I mean, there's such a um, such a diverse and the past can be used in so many different ways, and it's right. not always about nation building and empire building, which the scholarship tends to focus on. You you have good examples of people using history to critique the system, critique critique the state as well. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely. So that at least you know you have both ends of the spectrum, uh, and then a, a, a great revi- variety of. Um, of positions and different uses uh, in between. Yeah, and it really does just show that the, the past really is infinite. You know, whatever you want to find in it, you can find in it. If you want to find something to justify the, the arrival of this um, authoritarian bureaucracy that, as you call the, the Qin right. and, and Han right. dynasties, you can certainly find a past to, to, to justify that. And if you want to, you know, critique that, there's, a, there's certainly a past you can go to there as well. Um, yeah. So it, it's very, very instructive, I think, in, in the way this works. And um, I think ultimately your book... It's probably written for for specialists, right? It's written for people in your field. Is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it. Yeah, def- yeah. Especially the very detailed discussion of specific text um, in in the middle of the book, in the body of the book. Yeah. Um, but for for all that, I found it very approachable. You know, I, I'm somebody who okay. certainly has knowledge of of China. I, I do teach a class on on Asian history and stuff like that. But sir, I'm not a specialist by any means. But I thought the way you structured it was just so easy to get a sense of where you were going. Um, and then when you were making your arguments, you were very clear about how those arguments were being made. And then you always did a really good job of, of summing up where you, uh, you know, where we'd been and where we were going. And so it, it was this complex stuff. It was dealing with sources, some of which I was familiar with, some of which I, I wasn't, but I thought you did a really great job leading me as a reader through these, these again, very complex, very important arguments um, in a way that didn't make me feel like I was, you know, a trespassing in a, in a territory that was not my own. Oh, thank you. Uh, I, I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, uh, yes, be, uh, the book was written with 
specialist in mind, but at the same time, I was very much hoping that it can reach a wider audience as well. And it's great to hear that, in part because I think, um, I think the, at a very fundamental level, um, what I really want to address, um, the, the very basic question that, I, that I'm interested in, that I want to explore, is, is the question of why people write history or why people think historically, not just in early China, but just in general. Uh, you know, on you know, in many of my classes uh, here at Lingnan, um, uh, on the first day of class, I always ask my student, um, you know, why do we do history? I mean, they're so well conditioned to to think that um, oh, history is one of the many subjects that we must learn. Um, <laughs> just you know, just like math- mathematics and English and Chinese language, they don't really. I mean, but I I try to impress upon them how strange it is for someone to sit down and say, hey, I'm going to write a story about the past. Yeah. Uh, and strictly about the past, and it's such a weird kind of anthropological phenomenon, and and it happened, you know, at different times at different places around the world, uh, happened a lot in early China, and and so I so I think despite the fact that this is a, a work very squarely focused on early China, I do have that kind of anthropological context uh, in the back uh, in the background, um, and I and I hope that this will contribute to that larger discussion uh, of why write history, you know, why history matters, which actually, by the way, is the original title of the book. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, why history matters. <laughs> I feel like your title just does a great job. Like you read your title and you know what this is going to be. You know, it, it does a really good job of, of setting things up. Oh, thank that's you. all I had. You know, that's all I, the only information I had about your book was that title. And instantly I said, oh, this has definitely got to be for me. <laughs> and I, I agree with what you're, yeah. what you're saying, that it is about Chinese history, but it's also just about history. That's one of the reasons yeah. it took me because it's not it's not that long. It's, I think it's two hundred oh, some pages. pages? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It took me a while to read though because what I found is that I would be reading and then I would stop and I'd think about a point you made, not just how it you know impacted China or about the specific history, but it would make me think about this kind of larger story of history and the way we think about it, the way we write about it, uh, the way we use history. And so I, I kept finding myself, you know, that that thing where you're holding a book and you feel your head kind of drifting to the left. And I found myself looking out the window, just thinking about things and then realized, oh, I got to get back and I got to read. I got to read this. One of the things that, that you know, that kept coming back to me um, as I was reading is that, you know, I started talking about comparative history and the way that comparative history, mm-hmm. you talk about how it essentializes civilizations. But what increasingly is occurring to me as I, as I read uh, more and more, because I do try to read widely on, on, on different aspects mm. of history, is that mm. everything starts looking the same at a certain point. Not, not in a bad way, but you know, the idea of this unique Chinese character, something like that. When you read stuff like this, it just kind of disappears. And you start seeing that you know, the things that, that the Chinese were doing this period you're talking about, this thousand year period, had their unique aspects. There's details of it that are distinct but it does mm-hmm. look like what other people were doing at different times. And you really, you know, I think if you look hard enough when you read these different histories, you stop seeing these, these divisions, you stop seeing the ways that the societies are somehow essentially different from each other. And you start really seeing there's this just human element that's going back and forth across the world and, and is describing the way humans interact, the way they act in so many different places. And so your, your book, weirdly enough, because it's, you know, this very specific book about China, really got me thinking about just humans in general in a very uh, important way I, I found. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that uh, because um, this actually goes back to um, one of the issues you raised earlier about comparative history yeah. um, and, 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 and how so much of it is, is really just about kind of essential 
descriptions and kind of um, an inventory of differences. You know, um, early China was like that, and then ancient Greece was like that. You know, and then a long list of how they're different, or how, or right. how they might be similar, but mostly how they're different. And I actually, I'm not against the idea of comparative history per se. In fact, I, I think neither. me neither. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? To to compare this, like, to compare some of these writings from early China with uh, Herodotus and Thucydides and other historical narratives in in ancient Greece and other parts of the world. But it's it's the approach, right? Uh, this is is that essentialist approach that have been. That have been so popular and still continues to be very popular at a popular. I mean, uh, in 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 the in the wider public, uh, mm-hmm. that is frustrating. Yeah. And so, and I think what you just described, you no, know, that is so encouraging because I think we can do comparative history meaningfully, uh, but we have to kind of kind of remap the landscape. What what, what in fact uh, what we do have in common, in fact, you know, be, like across Eurasia, yeah. uh, despite the different languages, and then I think we can see meaningful differences more easily more effectively right when you start with the idea of, of similarity it comes you come to a different conclusion than when you start with the, the assumption of difference i think exactly exactly yeah so you start with not assumption of radical differences but what rather you know a common ground of humanity i've kept you for a, a while already but i i did want to end talking about a similar thing which is that so you you know you write this book i think it does a really good job updating our ways of understanding the past the Chinese past in particular, but I, again, I was just saying the past in general. How would you imagine, a, you know, a scholar would would then use this? So somebody teaching, you know, an introductory class to Chinese history. How does does reading your book maybe change the story we tell about Chinese history? Mm, well, thank you. I mean, uh, yeah, that's a very important and big question. Well, one one thing one thing that I hope that um, uh, historians of China, but specifically early China, would do more is to uh, is to reconstruct the the dialogues and debates uh, that um, that took place in early China. So much of the scholarship, uh, you know, as we as we had discussed in this last hour, so much of the scholarship is about just um, kind of describing who these people were, what they believed in. So dialogue was not dialogues or debates was not is not something that they would be concerned with. But here, you know, I, I structured the whole book around different dialogues between different texts from one period to the next. And you really see the, the contentiousness and the diversity of beliefs uh, and, and ideas in early China. And, and, and I hope that aspect will be, uh, will be recognized more uh, in future uh, scholarship and teaching. You know, so one would not, be, one would not uh, so casually say things like, oh, you know, the early Chinese believed in ancestor worship. You know, right. that's just so obviously wrong <laughs> right. when you actually when you actually uh, have in mind all these dialogues that took place in early china yeah and just really finally you know perch all this cliche about about like this this kind of inventor uh, this all these beliefs that the early chinese supposedly had yeah so i think that's one that, that'll be wonderful you know if if if, I, I, if we see more of the, of this type of um, uh, scholarship this this type of attention paid to the to the to the debates in early china you know, as you were talking, it was we can we can end with this. I don't want, like I've kept you long enough, but um, oh, no, it, no. Yeah. it occurs to me that that one of the problems, the one of the reasons I think there's this gap between, you know, the work that people like you are doing, this this you know really um, you know important work you're doing on on kind of new ways of understanding this this Chinese past or any past, and then the way that that the past is then you know passed on to students, I guess, is that mm-hmm. it's the essential ide- ideas are so so much easier to talk about, right? 
<laughs> and so yes. if you imagine, you know, a high school history teacher who's got oh. however many classes, right? And they're they're trying to prepare their students for the AP exam or they're trying to, you know, make sure they fulfill the <laughs> California history curriculum. Right. It's it's it is a challenge to try to it constantly is, yeah. keep up with with the scholarship. You know, I, I, I even for, for me, I teach uh, some Indi Indian history. And increasingly, it just seems like the caste system just doesn't it's not that big of a deal in Indian history. You know, right. it, it is to a certain extent you know, invented in its modern form, you know, during the British Empire and that, that sort of thing. Right. But when you talk about early India, it's so convenient to just introduce caste at that time. Right. And so right. to a certain extent, you know, it's about the habits of, of us as instructors as well, mm -hmm. that um, we got to put the work in ultimately to make sure that our students are, are getting access to this past that, that people like you are, are, mm -hmm. are providing us. Because it's, it is, as I said earlier, it's a, it's a more interesting past it's a richer past. There's just more going on there than, than what we get in these, these traditional narratives of, of the Chinese past or, or just any, you know, any past that we, we talk about as historians. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's difficult, you know, to translate um, some of these ideas into a classroom setting, even at the university level, but much less at the um, secondary level. But at the same time, actually, you know, for those who, are, who might be listening, you know, who are, who are um, secondary school teachers, history teachers, um, you know, I can, uh, you know, something like the, uh, the Confucian Analects, uh, it's actually very fun to use and quite easy to teach. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, because they're, they're short, you know, this, this is not like a long essay treatise, treatises um, that the student have to suffer through, but you know, just a few lines, you know, and they, you know, and it's kind of culturally familiar to, you know, all the, all the parodies that you see with like fortune in on fortune cookie. Yeah, Confucius uh, say that right. kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so, and it's just a few lines actually might go a long way. Um, uh, you know, he loved the past, you know, and then all uh, the lines that some of the passages that I quoted in my, in my chapter, you know, that he, he studied the past and he decided to follow this particular dynasty, you know, or, or a teacher can ask a question, you know, uh, that, um, like, if it's all about just being obedient and conservative, then what is the point of learning? You know, this is such a key theme in the analects. You know, right. if, if, if it's all about obedience and listening to your parents, then there's no, no learning needs to take place. We can just you know, listen to our parents and, and be done with learning. So I think it's, it's actually quite, it might not be easy to get the student to see the full picture, um, uh, this alternative reading of early Confucianism, but I think it's not that difficult to at least problematize uh, a lot of this old cliche, a harmful cliche, uh, just to plant that seed um, in the minds of the students. That's, that's um, a great, great way to end it. I, I like that statement a lot. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Vincent, for spending this time with me. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the book. And once again, it's The Politics of the Past in Ancient China. And I want to end because we like, we like to end with good quotes on this podcast. So I want to end with a quote from you. I don't know if you like being quoted to yourself, but uh, you say, quote, the future is uncertain for it has yet to come. The past, however, is no less uncertain. Docile and capacious, the field of the past has always been eminently susceptible to capitalization mm -hmm. towards multitudinous ends according to the order of the present. So thank you for being with me. Everybody should check out Vincent's book. And Vincent, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Talk to me. Well, that was uh, absolutely fantastic. Boy, I tell you, Professor Lung uh, made any number of points about the historical imagination of ancient China that uh, really struck me, Josh, and and in particular, you know, with reference to what we've been talking about, uh, you know, he said what he discovered in the ancient 
historical past and the historical imagination of China was a much more contentious and diverse universe of beliefs really than that simple reductionist or uh, as you guys called it essentialist view of China as being a particular thing with regard to to history but I love that the fact that you know you guys acknowledge look as history teachers it's a lot easier to teach that kind of reductionist or essentialist past with its few simple tropes or its you know its exceptionalist past with its easily you know, reducible uh, tropes, but that's not really the, the history we want, is it? No, not really. And that that idea about it being easier to teach the essentialism. There's times I'll be reading books where I'm loving it. At the same time, I'm like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this now? What, what what does it mean to how I have to teach my class? I read a book by uh, Valerie Hansen. Wrote a book on the Silk Road a few years ago, and uh, it completely upends what I was thinking about the Silk Road. And so I'm like, oh well, there goes you know, two days of class that I now need to figure out what to do about it. Um, but at the, at the same time, as I noted in, in the interview, the histories that come out of that are so much more vital. They have so much more to say. They're so much more interesting than the old kind of essentialist narratives we used to have, these old comparative histories we used to, we used to do. They tell a more complex story, but they tell a more human story where more voices are allowed in, where we get a sense of that contentiousness that you spoke about that we talked about in the interview. Um, and it really reveals more, you know, in many ways that you look around the world at any given time and societies are not as different as we, we often used to think that the same kind of debates are happening around the world. But also, I think what we get out of this, he's writing about the politics of the past in early China, but you're really seeing as well that the kinds of debates they're having in China, you know, in that first millennium, that thousand years roughly of the first millennium BCE, they're not that different than the kinds of, of discussions we're still having. Uh, you know, he makes this point late in the book, it's actually on the, the final page, um, that the past had always been political and the past has always been political. And that was just as much the case, um, you know, 3000 years ago as it is today. Don't you imagine that some of the bureaucrats in the Han dynasty would have had the same objection, you know, to the, the kind of historical complexity and diversity and contentiousness that, that Vincent was talking about, as the New York Post does to, you know, yeah. uh, the Pulitzer Prize winners and, you know, Colson Whitehead in the 1619. Yeah, I mean, there, there is, there's these apologists, you know, in the Han Dynasty who are trying to rewrite this history that can therefore support the claims of the Han Dynasty as they take over from, from the previous Qin Dynasty. They're doing propaganda ultimately in, in many ways by trying to make a history that makes sense for the Han. And, and one of the, I think, the most fascinating chapters, we didn't get a chance to get into this that much just because there's too much to talk about. But he talks about the, the grand historian, as he's known, uh, Sima Chen, who, uh, who writes this history. And, and, and Vincent really points out that it's a, it's a history that's very critical of the Han. Um, here's a guy whose life goal is to write this, this chronicle, this history that's never been written before. Um, and in pursuit of that history, he falls under suspicion of, of the Han for various political reasons we don't need to get into. He accepts castration instead of exile or, or, um, or execution. The unkindest cut of all. The unkindest cut. He goes to prison for, I think he's in prison for three years. And traditionally when a gentleman was castrated and sent to prison like that. When they got out, they committed suicide. And he makes this point that 
no, I'm not going to commit suicide. I got work to do basically. <laughs> and he completes this, this work of history, this uh, really signature work of Chinese history right. uh, that becomes so vital for, for later uh, historians in China to kind of look back on uh, because he wants to get across, you know, these critiques he has yeah. of, of the power structure that time. It, uh, it's, it's so powerful. So, it's so powerful and such a great illustration, you know, and I'm, I'm sure those Han bureaucrats, you know, who, who, who sent Sima Chen to, to prison, you know, would have, said maybe the same thing that some of the uh, critics uh, do today of a more diverse, more contentious. They say it's divisive, you know, but I think what they really mean, John, Josh, is that it's, uh, it's an interruption. And what it's an interruption of is that standard narrative, whether it be of, of Chinese exceptionalism or essentialism or American exceptionalism or essentialism. Because when you get that knock on the door from a Colson Whitehead, you know, or any of the storytellers from Vincent Loom, for, for that matter, who are suggesting that there are more parties to this story and that those stories have been covered up or deliberately um, dismissed, that that represents a kind of intrusion, a kind of, of, of um, interruption of that, that dominion of the past that, that you guys mentioned. And so here... We'll leave it to Hayden White, I guess, for the, for this episode, you know, because again, what, what Hayden White was saying is that we have to embrace those stories if we're to have any kind of uh, either ethical or moral stance on somehow addressing the problems that confront us now. The historian, he writes, serves no one well by constructing a specious continuity between the present world and that which preceded it. On the contrary, we require a history that will educate us to discontinuity more than ever before. For discontinuity, disruption, and chaos is our lot. It's a great way to end it. This has been a fun discussion. That'll do it for, for episode seven. And we will be talking to you guys again next week where we'll figure out what we're going to talk about, right? Absolutely. It'll be good. We know that. It's a sin when you play into ignorance Another one closing your eyes again So you don't have to see what's happening Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat Stuck, stuck in a cycle, so we repeat